you know by now that the dogs in my house wear Paco collars, and the newest addition is Stig's tan leather collar with brass fittings and turquoise stones. It seriously looks like the bay we bought our house on, and his smooth coat and long neck show it off perfectly. We picked it out in person at Paco's booth, and the staff helped us to be sure we got the exact fit and style that was right for him. I catch myself mesmerized by this collar when I walk him. How crazy is that? So get over to PacoCollars.com and grab a collar you'll be obsessed with, and don't forget to use the promo code COGDOG for free shipping. We've got a puppy. Puppy Elementary is my puppy training subscription service, and it's all about our new puppy, Watson. It's just $45 for six months of Watson's development and education, and you'll have indefinite access to the materials, so sign up anytime. Just go to www.thecognitivecanine.com and click the Puppy Elementary tab at the top of the page to register. Each week, you'll have access to multiple training videos and blogs, as well as constant access to the Puppy Elementary Facebook group, where you can talk about your progress with other students. Watson won't stay little for long, so join now. Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. As you guys know, I'm doing a string of podcasts interviewing women that I admire in the field. And one of the women I admire the most in the field of animal training and also in human education is Michelle Puglio, who is famous for working with guide dogs, transitioning guide dogs over to clicker training. And this is our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, I have a special treat for you here today. I've got Michelle Puglio here on the podcast, and Michelle has been in the field of dog training for over 40 years, and she is most well-known for being responsible for bringing uh, science-based clicker training to the world of guide dog training. She also happens to be a very talented freestyler in her spare time, and I first quote-unquote met or was introduced to Michelle's work um, because I attend Clicker Expo every year. Michelle, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. I'm happy to be here, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you are, as I said, kind of most well-known for your work in guide dogs. Will you just tell us a little bit about that? It was a, you recently retired from it, so you first started working for guide dogs in the 70s, right? Right. In 1974, I started as an apprentice uh, with the school I've worked for for 42 years. Yeah. Wow. So tell me a little bit about that. In the 70s, um, was it difficult for you to kind of break into that world? I understand it was a male-dominated field at the time. Well, interestingly enough, I was a bit naive about that. I was uh, working with horses and had decided to flip my uh, profession in horses and make it a hobby and turn my hobby of dogs into a career. 
and I was doing some dog training at a kennel in Long Beach, California. At that time, I happened to read a magazine article about guide dog schools. Uh, you remember, there's no internet or anything like that back then. So uh, it was a magazine article that, at the end of the article, it gave addresses of guide dog schools in the country. And I wrote all three schools. And I had no concept of being treated differently because being a woman, I hadn't run into that yet uh, in my... Uh, I was only like 20, 21 years old. And so I get one letter back that I, to this day, have framed on my wall that says that women are not physically or emotionally capable of training guide dogs for the blind. And I remember my, my reaction to that was again very naive and that I was like, oh, I, I didn't realize that. Not really even... <laughs> reacting in any sort of a negative way. It was more surprise, remember, 1973. Uh, then I got a letter from the school I ended up working for that offered me uh, an interview. And I had, you know, hindsight looking back, what I didn't know at the time was that they had just decided to give women a try. So I was their second guinea pig to see if women could actually do the work. So it, it definitely, there were barriers at that time for women, but I had not personally experienced it. Every time I hear the story of that letter framed on your wall, I get chills. It makes me so, you know, it makes me angry that that happened at all, but it makes me respect the work that you have done in Guide Dogs just that much more. Because what a, you know, what a barrier. And and really, what a kind of stroke of good luck that the other school was kind of getting over themselves and <laughs> deciding that women could maybe could maybe try it out. Um, I think. Well, kind of a, a funny side story about that is years later, when uh, I was doing really well in the industry, uh, one of the head managers at that school, I told him the story. And he, and he was like pulling the hair out that he couldn't believe that we didn't get you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's so real. And so many women that I talk to have stories, um, have stories like that, have stories maybe similar to that. But that one is so blatant. And I, I just really appreciate that you had some kind of foresight and saved that letter. <laughs> And it is on your wall. And yeah, well, at the time, it seemed after I, you know, I just had it, of course, in, in a folder or something. But after a couple of years of working in in uh, in my position, I realized how special that letter was. And I was really glad that I had saved it. The, uh, the, the interesting part was that coming into, uh, it was a staff of trainers of around 13 trainers, all men, except the one other woman who had arrived a few months before me. So it was, it was a, a kind of a stressful uh, atmosphere at first just because, you know, I look back now and I look at those young men, most of them out of the military, they had done uh, dog work uh, for Vietnam War is where they came from. Yeah. And they were certainly brainwashed that women couldn't do the work. It wasn't their fault. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, they grew up with that same belief system ingrained in them. And 
So in a way, I kind of felt a lot of, uh, I don't want to say stress, but I felt I had to show them that women could. It wasn't, it wasn't to prove just to them, it was more to prove to a generation that, uh, that you know, they were making the wrong assumptions about something. And, and if, if there's probably one of the best things I've done in my career that I'm really proud of is just showing that it isn't, it isn't something that, you know, takes physical strength. It, it takes uh, creativity and intellectual reactions and empathy and all that. Exactly, which is... <laughs> a perfect segue into the fact that um, one of the things that you're most well known for and one of the things that when I learned it about you, I was so excited about is that when you entered into this field, the training was, like you said, the trainers were ex-military. And so it was, you know, like all dog training was at the time, which was you know, punishment-based, force-based, whatever you want to call it, but the dogs had a choke chain on and it there was no cookies. And, <laughs> and um, it was certainly not clicker training. It was certainly not what um, you're known for today. So talk to me about that transition a little bit. It's almost as if the first thing you did was show that a woman could do the job. And then next you showed that in fact, the reason that it doesn't take, you know, a stronger, physically stronger person to do it is because we don't actually have to be physically forcing them. So talk about that transition a little bit. When did you first start to go, oh, there might be a different way to do this? Well, I guess one of my first surprises when I when I started working, and the first couple weeks I did a whole bunch of just observing uh, different trainers and I just remember being so surprised at how they, they weren't as good as I thought they were going to be. Um, I was thinking I was going to be seeing the ultimate trainers, people who train guide dogs for the blind. Ooh, you know, yeah. they're going to be really good and I'm going to learn so much. And I remember thinking, wow, these people are, are kind of, even at that time, I was using traditional techniques, but my traditional techniques were so much kinder and nicer and more pleasant, and the dogs learned a lot faster. So it actually happened pretty quickly that I was getting really good results, and I had one very brave trainer, one of the guys, came up to me in the hallway one day after watching me teach four or five dogs in a row how to hold the dumbbell in just five or ten minutes each. And, of course, they're all struggling because every time the dogs drop the dumbbell, the dog gets punished. Yeah. And he came up to me and he said, how the hell are you doing that? And that took a lot of guts from him in that atmosphere totally. to be open and come up to a brand-new apprentice of course, I also happen to be a woman, but to come up and actually say, I see you are doing so much better and you're being so much gentler and kinder than we are being without saying it that way, that was a really big deal for the atmosphere at the time was pretty much rock'em sock'em training. And of course, they were. here's the thing, they were getting away with it because they were using these very hardy Labradors, which are like, oh, yes. I'll do it again. 
you know, that they weren't using temperaments that would show so much extreme fallout to what they were doing. Right. So actually, right from the beginning, I had this softer side of traditional training. And I would say in the 70s and the 80s, the effect I had on that training program was to make it an actually very good traditional program. So it wasn't people losing their temper anymore. It was people trying to think about how to apply praise, love, affection, and negative reinforcement and positive punishment, but how to apply it more thoughtfully and effectively so you don't have to be so harsh on the dog. So that kind of was my story from the beginning. I was very lucky that the first dog training I ever did was with a traditional trainer who was really good at what she did. It was all about her reinforcement, which of course didn't include cookies or toys, but it included genuine reinforcement from the relationship. And so I was lucky that I had that as a background coming in. And you started in horses too, and you know, we all know, I mean, probably the horse training was also not clicker training at the time, but you probably learned there as well that a gentler, you know, just solid operant conditioning approach um, was working better for you there as well. Yes, and I was I was lucky there too. I mean, I, I came out of high school with the plan of learning and being a professional horse person. And I went to Linda Tellington Jones and Whiteworth Jones, who was husband at the time. I went to their research farm and worked and trained for almost a year. And so I also was very lucky that the information I was getting was from people who wanted to be kinder and gentler, even though these were traditional techniques, they were well applied. And in comparison to, so many people will hear the word traditional and they think it means someone beating a dog up. Not necessarily. I mean, you know, right. it, it, it can be done in a way that the animal is reasonably happy and comfortable. They may not have choices, but obviously one of the things that keeps this type of training going is that it works. So, meaning you get you get response, and you, and then the trainer gets reinforced. So I was lucky that both horse side and dog side, my experiences initially were with people who they weren't all about let's just punish it. They were about how can we communicate with the animal and have the animal be a partner with us, even though they weren't using that positive reinforcement category very efficiently. Yeah, and so I'm seeing a parallel that I see all the time in just kind of in my own little brain, my own little world, <laughs> which is that you were kind of in the business of changing minds. And one of my favorite Clicker Expo talks of yours that I ever attended was about that topic um, specifically, which it's just basically about, you know, if we are to help people transition to more science-based training. Um, there's a few things that we can do better as opposed to, you know, I think a lot of people just like rant and rave on the internet. Um, and I usually say a better way to go is to just kind of shut up and show off. Um, do you feel like in helping guide dogs um, transition to positive reinforcement-based techniques, um, what were some of the, you know, kind of bullet points of how to help people 
change that could also potentially apply to the sexism that women faced at the time and unfortunately still face um, here and there today? I think the big bullet point is if you are truly a positive reinforcement person, then you should also be using on people. That's bullet point number one. So people who rant and rave may feel for the moment, they might feel some sort of satisfied feeling that they just, you know, bully somebody who's mean to animals, whatever. But for sure, it's not going to help change them. So if you truly do want someone to change, you should be treating them the same way you would be treating a difficult animal that you're trying to communicate with. And that means that you're going to try to be using positive reinforcement at any opportunity you have, any small little piece of behavior, even someone going, well, that's interesting. That's a huge step for some people to even be able to open their mind enough to ask a question. So besides that, that means that while you're trying to help, even if your help is just a a moment in time, you, you have a passing uh, interlude with somebody, you have this passing, somebody is in the hall at a clicker expo, and somebody says, oh, you know who that is, that's the traditional trainer. Well, wait a minute, they're at clicker expo. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. So you have a window of opportunity to actually add some positive reinforcement. So at the talk, I think you're alluding to, I usually end it by saying, and so right now I want you all to imagine that Caesar walks in the room right now. Yeah. So what what would you do? Right. You know, what and would I, you do? Yeah. Would your think... first reaction be, um, <laughs> or would it be, welcome? Yeah. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah. I mean, there's so many opportunities that people miss with humans because we seem to treat them differently. So that's a big bullet point is teaching, treating somebody with respect, because if you don't treat them with respect, they don't want to listen to you. All they're going to do is get more defensive about what they do. So preaching, preaching at someone does not work. I've learned that for sure. And believe me, all the things I'm saying don't do, I've done. (laughs) it, It doesn't work. What does work is to demonstrate by what you do, even if you're not throwing it in their face. It's available for them to see the results. And then two, when somebody has a little interest, you don't try to shove the whole package on them. You just try to find one little place that they could start and they could get excited about. You don't change from a traditional trainer to a positive reinforcement trainer overnight. It, it takes time. You have a lot of new skills to learn. The good news is a good traditional trainer has really good observational skills. Right. They just haven't used them at the right moment. They have used the observational skills for noticing when things are about to go bad and then they wait for it to go bad. But they've actually got good observation skills. They just have to learn to tweak when they're going to use them to apply positive reinforcement before things go bad. 
But I think people think that when an organization or a program, no matter how big, I'm, I work with organizations that are literally three people, and I'm working with several that are like over 50. Yeah. So no matter how big it is, you still have to understand there's a process, and you have to support them the whole way. So when I come back a year later, I've got several clients I work with every year. I go back, and, and I see a little bit of improvement. Are there things I'm seeing that I wish would, uh, I just have to like suck it up and go, they're not quite ready for that yet. It'll come because if they've opened their minds, as long as it's working for them, they're going to continue to grow. My job is to make sure they're getting enough information and help that it does work because you can't just have somebody make a conversion on paper, meaning, okay, I get it. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry I'm a traditional trainer. I'm going to become a positive reinforcement trainer. Well, they can't do it unless right. they don't, unless they have somebody helping them or they have the right information so that when they run into a snag in their training, otherwise, guess what they're going to do? They're going to go back to what works for them and it's so comfortable for them that they don't have, they hardly have to think because they've been doing it so long. So one of the big challenges isn't just the decision to make that change. The challenge is ongoing improvement and getting better and better at it. So if we look at all the positive reinforcement trainers who are taking online courses and workshops and seminars, they're certainly embedded in being positive reinforcement trainers, but how good are they still, right? They're yeah. still learning. Yeah. Everyone's getting better. Everyone's trying to like, oh gosh, my, my mechanical skills are, are getting a little better. Well, that's somebody who's been working at it for years. Now imagine somebody cold turkey coming from a whole different style of training and trying to learn those new skills. So the big bullet points to me are be a positive reinforcement educator too. Yeah. You know, don't don't punish because punishment has fallout. And the fallout is, guess what? They're going to get defensive and they're going to regress right back to where they were. So keep up the positive reinforcement at any opportunity that it's actually there available for you to use. And then understand that it's a patience thing. If somebody has constant help, they're going to progress faster. If somebody's only getting help once a year, by bringing somebody in for a seminar, it's going to take longer. The larger number of people in an organization, it's going to take longer. So you have to have patience. You know, when, when Ken Ramirez was first telling his stories about working with law enforcement years ago, and he was talking about a, a crowd of men with their arms crossed over the front looking mad, and they have guns on their belts. You know, <laughs> yes, and I think that, I think his words audience I've had been yeah. years ago, but they didn't have guns on their belt. <laughs> you know, so but the thing is, is by being patient, every time he goes back and he works with them, they're getting better and better, and there's less punishment being used. So one of the weaknesses in our love of positive reinforcement is we get impatient, and we expect that if somebody says, okay, I'm going to learn that, that everything in their program all of a sudden turns to positive reinforcement. And it doesn't, it takes time. So patience and support and continue to be a positive reinforcement person towards them because all you're going to do is make somebody more defensive with punishment or they're just going to ignore you. 
they're going to say, well, you're not even worth listening to because all you're doing is preaching at me and I've been doing this for years and I know how to do it and the, the whole thing. Your question about male versus female, I think that, again, I look at generations of people that I've known over the years and there's definitely a generation, an age-related learned belief system. So, for instance, in the 70s and the 80s, most of the men had an ingrained belief that the man was more the working person, was the stronger person, and could probably do a better job at A, B, C, and D than a woman. But I'm, I'm nowadays, I'm meeting young men who may be in a program doing traditional training, and that's why I'm there. But these young men are so open because I think their whole generation, their upbringing, was being more open and equal with women. And I think even my husband's generation, you know, I mean, that generation was in a transition period of men being the strong, better than, and then, oops, now it's women's equality and we have to, you know, do the same thing. And I think they actually have a lot of conflict in what they were initially brought up in their home by their parents, how they were brought up, and then as they became adults and went out to make their own living, the world was changing. And I, I, I'm so impressed nowadays when I meet some of these young men at guidebook schools who are, you know, they're in their early 20s, early 30s, and they are so open books about, oh, I'm so excited about this. It's, you would never have seen that in previous generations only because of the way they were raised. And so I kind of attribute it more to that. Yeah, like just it's been a, a societal shift more so than, you know, kind of us, like single-handedly a couple of people <laughs> changing things. It's been this huge societal shift, which I feel like, Right, and I hope that we may be having a societal shift um, towards, you know, I hope every day towards uh, more positive reinforcement with everything. I think that we focus too much on retribution and too much on um, just kind of punishment, at, you know, like I said, as a means of retribution versus actual behavior change. And I think when we think about actual behavior change, then we can see that positive reinforcement is the most powerful tool we have and we should be using it and we should be using it better um, with people across the board. For sure. And I think that in our society, even raising children or how we treat criminals or people that are acting, behaving badly, um, in the human element, we kind of assume we have this communication ability to say, if you do that, you'll get punished this way. And so you have this thought process about, I'm choosing not to go up to a stranger and kick him in the knee because right. I'm going to get punished for that. Yeah. Whereas when we're working with animals, we don't have that ability to have that kind of communication. So, you know, you and I probably wouldn't be giving seminars if every person could say to their dog before they went in the ring, now if you just do your best, <laughs> at the end, you're going to get a ribeye steak, okay? Right? I mean, so I might you know, do that. When I'm giving a seminar about <laughs> handling your food rewards well for performance, right. I give that analogy because 
if if you could do that, I wouldn't be giving seminars. I could, you know, because people would be able to have these conversations with their animal, and and I think that's probably the the, the killer of using positive reinforcement in our society is that we have this ability with our species to talk to one another and actually explain what the outcome's going to be if you do this or that. Absolutely. And it's, like you said, I mean, it's holding us back versus, you know, if we all just kind of understood that, um, you know, behavior, behavior always has a function. And if we actually just make sure that the right behaviors are the ones that are working for people, um, that would be more effective. So I'm just going to recap a couple of takeaways that I've written down. Um, Number one is just to reiterate to show up, shut up and show off, which is, you know, don't try to preach to people, but instead, you know, work on your skills and then show people those skills. And I love that story about the supervisor that pulled you aside because that is just that it takes guts to say, hey, you know something I don't know. And we should always pause. We should always reinforce that. We should always apply positive reinforcement when somebody has those kinds of guts to say that kind of thing. And just that... It's really true with with people in... Dog training, horse training, anything, because egos are so huge in there. And, and that takes a lot of guts for somebody to go up to somebody with less experience and say, I really like what you're doing. Oh, my gosh. It's like the hardest thing in the world. And when somebody, you know, comes to a seminar who maybe showed up at the seminar with a prong collar on their dog or whatever, um, it's so important to actually just praise that person for coming at all, rather than, you know, um, berate them, make them leave their prong collar in the car, etc. If you just kind of let them have whatever they think they need to have to feel comfortable, and then just teach them through it. um, I've had it happen so many times where then the next day they leave it in the car, and I didn't say anything about it. Um, In in my experience, Sarah, that's exactly what People get so hung up on equipment, yeah. and you know what? If they feel they need it and you pull it off, you haven't given them the skills yet. So it's like you you basically want to give them skills, and then you're showing them through those skills. So, you know, I don't think you need that anymore, do you? And they go, God, I don't. Yeah, because if you just take it away, you know, that comes back to this other takeaway of we need to avoid punishment with our human learners just like with dogs because it always has fallout if you just take it away from them if you just take their security blanket away then you've just made them uncomfortable and we all know that um if we're training a dog that's uncomfortable in for whatever reason we're not going to get as far as if they felt totally safe right so we should be doing that for people as well um Go ahead. And you literally, you know, in the example of, a, let's say, a prong collar, you, you could be putting them in a position before they have the skills of they actually do feel out of control and they feel dangerous. Absolutely. Now. They feel like, I can't control my dog or I'm going to get pulled over. Or, you know, it, it's like it, it isn't just the uh, theory of making them feel bad. It's, it's that you actually cause them to have no control of their dog at the moment 
And you need to teach them the skills first and the dog's responding to those skills. So they're getting reinforced by the dog's response. And that's when you go, you know, I don't think you need that anymore. Exactly. And I think the best pet dog trainers that I know are doing exactly that when people show up in their classes. They're just helping people to get that control that they need so badly um, by just addressing their skills as opposed to, you know, tearing them down the second they walk in the door. Um, yeah, yeah it's a, and it's a tough one because equipment of many forms can actually be very emotional to a positive reinforcement trainer, meaning they yeah. see it and they immediately think that this animal is being abused or treated poorly. So you have to ask yourself a question. Are you in this to facilitate more people using positive reinforcement, or are you in this to maintain the two clubs? There's the club of traditional, and there's the club of positive reinforcement. You know, I a long time ago, I made that decision coming from traditional that I wanted to facilitate more people using positive reinforcement. And I think some trainers who have those emotional knee-jerk reactions, they could benefit from asking themselves, what do I want? Do I want this other club that I get to complain about all the time? Is that actually, am I getting some sort of like reinforcement from that? Or do I sincerely want to see these people change? I love that. I love the, the this kind of intersection that we're all standing at, which is, do you want to just continue to have this huge divide, or do you want to actually bring both worlds together? And the behaviors that are going to get us there are definitely different. Definitely. For sure. Yep. Well, Michelle, yep. this has been so fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, if people want to look you up, where can they find you? Uh, my website is michellepoliot.com. That's probably the easiest, and I'm on Facebook. So. Perfect. That's where I found you, michellepoliot.com. Um, and you guys, definitely check her out, and if you have never attended a Clicker Expo, give that a try. Michelle, have a wonderful day, and thank you so much. You're welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Wow, wow, wow. So, so privileged to get to talk to someone I truly consider a feminist icon in my field. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you want to tell Michelle just how wonderful this episode was, definitely look her up on her website and shoot her an email. She is the loveliest person. Thanks for listening to Cog Dog Radio. If you have questions or suggestions, shoot them over to cogdogradio at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to like the Cog Dog Radio Facebook page. And until next time, happy training.